I want you to take your Bible and turn to Romans chapter 11. We're going to springboard off of Ecclesiastes chapter 1, but we're only going to be there for two verses. We're going to spend the bulk of our time in Romans chapter 11. Today we're going to wrap up our series of messages entitled Crippling Misconceptions. We have been examining what I consider to be the most crippling misconceptions that people have about God, about themselves, about life, and about the faith walk. Today, I told you earlier, we're getting to the mother of all misconceptions as we wrap up this series. But look, I'm going to begin with something else. In a few days, I'm going to turn 55 years old, double nickel. Uh, I'm becoming one of the old guys, right? Uh, I don't feel old. If it weren't for this gray hair, I'd say I probably don't look all that old. But if you heard my body and the noises, the creaks and cracks it makes every morning when I get out of bed, the grunting and the groaning that goes on in my household, you'd say, yep, Pastor Mike's now officially one of the old guys, okay? Uh, here's what I think. I think as I've aged, I've come to realize that old guys get a bad rap in our culture. I think old guys get a bad rap. I think it's easy to pick on old guys, right? Old guys, they don't get it. Look at him. They don't understand technology. Look at him. Their culture's lost its way somehow. And so people point the finger and poke fun at the old guys. Last week, my cell phone stopped working. If you tried to call me Wednesday or Thursday of this week, um, I don't know which morning it was, but for about six or eight hours, the phone would come on, but you couldn't do anything with it. And it didn't matter how many times I reset it, removed the battery, it didn't matter. I couldn't get the phone to function properly. So I had to walk into the Verizon store and speak with a 22-year-old college student to help me fix my phone. The moment I handed my phone over to this young millennial, I got the look. First, he looked at the phone, and then he looked at me. And when he looked at the phone and looked at me, he just sort of nodded. Because come to find out, my cell phone's pretty old. Now, you know me. I don't need the most advanced smartphone in existence. I mean, I'm not tweeting. I don't do Instagram. I'm not on the Facebook, right? I use my phone to make phone calls, shoot a few text messages here and there, and keep up with my calendar. So again, I don't need the latest, greatest, most advanced smartphone on the planet. Well, it turns out after handing my phone to this young man, I don't have the latest, greatest, most advanced smartphone on the planet. He said, sir, this phone is six generations old. In fact, this phone is so old that originally when Samsung put it on the market, they immediately replaced it with an improved version less than six months later because of all the flawed technology in the programming. I thought, well, this is a match made in heaven, a flawed phone for a a flawed guy here. We talked for a while. He said, look, in six months, this phone isn't going to work at all. So don't bring it back to me. You're going to have to upgrade. So I smiled. He fixed it. It's going to work for a while. When I left, I know he was laughing at me. I know he was, you know, FaceTiming all his friends or whatever they do. And they were laughing about the old guy who came in there with a cell phone that was almost as old as his father's, you know, bag phone that you used to plug into the cigarette lighter. Some of you are so young, you don't even know what a bag phone is, do you? Well, I think old guys get a bad rap sometime, and I'm here to stick up for them today on Super Bowl Sunday, because I want to introduce you to a handful of old guys who've really got it going on. Look, you all know this guy, right? Tom Brady's going to play in his 10th, count them, 10 
Super Bowls tonight. If Tom Brady wins the Super Bowl tonight, he will be the all-time winningest Super Bowl quarterback. He will be a seven-time Super Bowl winner. Tom Brady, most certainly, if he isn't already the GOAT, the greatest of all time, he will be after winning tonight. His coach is this guy, Bruce Arians. Bruce Arians is 68 years old. Bruce Arians will stand on the sideline with another old guy, Tom Brady. By the way, 43, if you don't know anything about the NFL, 43 at Tom Brady, that's geriatric in the NFL, right? I mean, they probably wheel him out in a wheelchair for warm-ups kind of thing. But his coach is an older man, 68 years old. He makes millions of dollars a year. He's at the top of his game. He's taken his team to the Super Bowl. Now, across the field on the other sideline, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers will face the Kansas City Chiefs. And the Kansas City Chiefs head coach is this guy, Andy Reid. Andy Reid is 62, almost 63 years old. Again, he makes millions of dollars, has millions in salary, bonuses, endorsements. And he's an old guy. But now, I've saved the best for last. Because that's the NFL. Let me take you back in time one month and remind you of this guy. You know who that is? That's Nick Saban. Nick Saban just won his seventh national championship. He is the greatest, most winning coach of all time in college football. The seventh national championship puts him beyond legendary names like Vince Lombardi, Paul Bear Bryant, Guess how old Nick Saban is? 69, almost 70 years old. Still at the top of his game. Oh, and by the way, here's what I read last week that it was even more depressing as a Georgia fan. Alabama has the highest recruiting class for 2021. Now what that means if you're not a football fan is... The most five-star athletes of high school football across the country signed with Alabama than any other school. That means Alabama's going to be good again next year. And that man will be their head coach, an old guy. And that's just football. Look, we could talk about LeBron James, who is 36 years old in the NBA. That's like ancient. You get it? We could talk about Tiger Woods, who's considered one of the old guys of the PGA Tour. When I was a young man, Nolan Ryan was still throwing 100-mile-an-hour uh, fastballs when he was 46 years old before he retired. And who could forget 35 years ago when the famous, world-famous, greatest golfer of all time, Jack Nicklaus, won his sixth, count them, sixth green jacket in Augusta by winning the Masters Tournament. And he also was 46 years of age. You see... In a culture that's constantly screaming, youth is everything. Look how young I am. Look how young I feel. Look how young I look. In a culture that's constantly trying to convince us, look how hip I am. Look how with it I am. I say, being old's where it's at. Because as you get a little older, you gain some very, very valuable perspective. Often one of the greatest blessings of growing older is the perspective gained by the decades. Older people very often, not always, but very often figure it out. Older people very often grasp what life is all about. A young man was arrested in the New York City subway system recently 
for spray painting the following message on the wall. This life is a test. It is only a test. Had this been an actual life, you would have received instructions as to what to do and where to go. That sounds like a young person would paint a message like that, doesn't it? You see, an older person begins to figure out what life is all about. Someone who said, life is what happens to you while you're busy planning more important things. Along those lines, I would say, life is what happens to you when you're trying to find something fun to do. So let me begin with a very big question. What is life? What is life? What's it mean? What's it all, what, it, what is it all about? Now, some would be quick to say, well, life is about family. Man, if you found someone to love, you've got children, you're building a family unit, you love one another, man, that's where life is at. That's what life is all about. Someone else would say, life is about accomplishment. It's about knowing that I've accomplished something beyond myself that gives meaning and, and fullness to life. Someone else say, no, life is about service, knowing that I've served my fellow man. I've made the world a better place. That's what life is all about. That gives me fulfillment and a sense of great satisfaction. No, no, no. Life is about legacy. Life is about leaving something behind that's going to outlive me or live beyond my years. That's what life is all about. Here, as I look around at popular culture, especially in social media, from Facebook to Instagram to Twitter, I think a whole lot of people believe life is about fulfillment. Life is about being self-fulfilled. Life is about getting what I want out of life. That's what gives our lives meaning and purpose. Listen, biblically speaking, one thing is for certain. Life is not all about me. That's what this book teaches. Biblically speaking, there's one thing I know for sure. Life is not all about me. That's something that a lot of old guys understand. That's something that a lot of older people have figured out because for a long time in their life, they pursued many of those other things that are meaningful, that are valuable, that are worthwhile. But they realize now that's not the goal. As far back as I can remember, we've been programmed to make life all about us. It's not only our natural default setting, <laughs> We come out of the box looking to fulfill and satisfy self. But the adults in our life contribute as well. What do we ask every fifth grader in our elementary schools? What do you want to be when you grow up, young man? No one ever asks, what does God want from you and your one precious life? Nobody ever asks that. When we get up in age and we get out of the house, we start asking ourselves, well, what do I want to do with my life now that I'm on my own? As we work hard through middle age to kind of pursue and reach some of our dreams, we begin to notice all the people who are standing in our way. Who's standing in my way, keeping me from my self-satisfaction and fulfillment? There are books by the hundreds in our bookstores that will help us define our personal goals, help us reach and achieve our hopes and dreams. Rick Warren wrote a book. Aside from the Bible, it is the best-selling hardback book of all time. It's called The Purpose Driven Life. And in it, Mr. Warren writes, 
Focusing on ourselves will never reveal our life's purpose. You were made by God and for God. Until you understand that, life will never make sense. Rick Warren begins the book with one sentence. It's not about you. I'll never forget reading it for the first time for myself. I opened it up, and that was the first sentence. It's not about you. And I personalized that. It's not about you, Mike. That one sentence has gone on to change millions and millions of lives by changing millions and millions of perspectives all around the world. Henry Blackaby, someone that I love and appreciate, wrote a book entitled Experiencing God, and in it he wrote, your love relationship with God is the single most important aspect of your life. If it's not right, nothing else will be right. Now, before we go any further, stop for a minute. Take a deep breath. Let it out. Don't unplug. Don't pull away. Don't assume the message today is going to be filled with psychobabble about the meaning of life. Okay? This is not a self-help session. By the way, I'm violently opposed to self-help. Anyway, we've got entire sections of our bookstores devoted to self-help. Open your eyes for a moment. 99.9% of the time, self is the problem. Why do I want to turn to self for the help to solve self's problem? I want help from outside of self to solve self, right? This is not about self-help. We're not interested in discussing or finding our, our inner child. I don't want to give you something that is so philosophical, so religious, that it's completely useless tomorrow morning on your way to work. What I actually want to do today in the time I have remaining is challenge your purpose paradigm. Why do you do what you do? Simple. Why do you do what you do? Why do you think what you think? Why do you read what you read? Why do you go where you go? You see, no matter how old you are, there's much of your life that is behind, but there's a lot still remaining. Before you embark on the rest of the journey, let's just consider some basic ideas. Here's question number one. It's challenging, so think it through. Are self-happiness and self-satisfaction my subconscious pursuits? Are self-happiness, well, I just want my children to be happy. That is my goal as a mother. I just want us to be happy in our marriage That's the goal of relationships, isn't it? Why, that's the goal in life. I just want to be happy. Our self-happiness and self-satisfaction, contentment, my subconscious pursuits. I put the word self-conscious in there because this is how we're wired. It's intuitive to search for happiness, self-satisfaction, fulfillment. As I said earlier, we're like that fresh out of the box. So follow me. Ask yourself, think about how you spend your time. Think about how you invest your money and your resources. Think about all the relationships that are in your life. Because as your pastor, I am certain that many of you, based upon the way and the demonstration of each of the above, how you spend your time, what you do with your money, all the relationships in your life, your goal, what gives meaning to your life, what you're searching for is 
self-happiness and self-satisfaction. So all of this leads us to crippling misconception number six. Here it is. Say it with me. It's all about me. Come on, say it with me with conviction. It's all about me. Is it? Not according to this book. You see, and that's something that many of the older people in the audience have finally figured out. Because we spent decades trying to satisfy our inner child. We chased what we thought would make us happy. But now we understand that's not the goal. Now we understand that's a very empty way to live. Look, in the 8th century BC, a wise old king named Solomon published a journal, an autobiography, if you will. It certainly reads like a personal diary. We call it the book of Ecclesiastes. He begins his work with these words. Meaningless. Meaningless. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. The Living Bible paraphrases that verse, In my opinion, nothing is worthwhile. Everything is futile. Now, let me tell you something about Solomon that you may not know. You probably know that King Solomon was King David's son. But unlike David, who was a wartime king, he used all of his resources, all of the, king's, uh, all of the kingdom's resources and uh, the armies to expand the kingdom and benefit the people. Solomon turned inward. Solomon was a peacetime king. And Solomon used all the kingdom's resources for his own selfish gain, his own personal search for satisfaction and fulfillment. And the book of Ecclesiastes is all about that journey. Now, look, let's make one thing perfectly clear, and I try to do this every time I address ideas like this from Ecclesiastes. Solomon was here. You and I are here. Okay? What I mean by that is, no matter what you think you've got going for you, to be successful in life's journey of achieving your goals, reaching your dreams, finding satisfaction and fulfillment through your accomplishments, relationships, or otherwise, Solomon had 10,000 times more. He had more resources. He had more time. He had more money. He had more uh, ability in many, uh, many cases, more opportunity. Solomon is the highest standard of someone who has the tools and resources necessary to go after what they want in life. So no matter how close you think you are, I'm telling you, Solomon is way beyond all of us. And his conclusion, it's all meaningless. It's pointless. In fact, the third verse, the very next verse, Solomon writes, what do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? What's the advantage of being alive on planet Earth? In fact, he actually says this, How am I better off than the guy that's in the grave? What's the advantage? In fact, gain, advantage, profit, that was very important to Solomon. Solomon looked around and wondered, What good is it to be alive? What good is it to reach my goals? I've reached many. Solomon built world-class gardens. He studied ancient literature. He traveled the world. His tastes were expensive. He knew wine, women, and song for as long and as much and as many as he wanted. 
In the end, he says, what good was any of it? What does it profit any of us to toil under the sun? In fact, if you go through the book, about a dozen times in a dozen chapters, Solomon asks that question, what good is it? How has it benefited me? How has it been a good thing? In fact, I could take you through it. Where's the gain in human wisdom? That's chapter 2. Where's the gain in human effort and achievement? That's also in chapter 2. Where's the gain in human rivalry and competition? That's chapter 4. Where's the gain in human advancement? What does it mean that I'm ahead of you? What does it mean that your home is bigger than mine? What does it really mean that you have more money in the bank than I have in mine? 50 years ago, 50 years from now, it won't matter to either one of us. Chapter 4, what is the gain in human power, human greed? What is the gain in human accumulation? Chapter 6, even religion. What is the gain in human organized religion? Ecclesiastes chapter 8. You see, Solomon finally understood what a lot of old guys get eventually. It's really not about me. It's really not about me. If you've bought into that crippling misconception, if you think the reason you're alive is to be happy, and the reason you're connected to others you say you love is so that they can make you happy, if you've bought into this crippling misconception, it's all about me, here's the result. This is what you're going to wind up with. A self-centered life that fails to bring glory to God. A self-centered life that fails to bring glory to God. Now, let me summarize Romans chapter 11 before we read the conclusion of the chapter. The first part of the chapter, Paul wants his reader to understand primarily two things. He wants the Roman Gentile followers of Jesus Christ to know that just because you're not Jews, just because you're not the chosen people, that doesn't mean you're any less precious to God. That's number one. Number two, he wants them to understand that now don't turn it around. Just because the Jews rejected Christ and crucified him, that doesn't mean you're superior to them. In fact, in a summary sort of way, the first part of the chapter, Paul is building this case that it's really not about Jews or Gentiles. It's not about Old Testament saints versus New Testament followers of Christ. It's all about God. So we pick it up. In chapter 11, verse 28, Paul's concluding his argument here. All right, follow me. Verse 28, for as far as the gospel is concerned, they, being the Jews, they are enemies for your sake. All right, stop for a minute. Let's make sure we get started off on the right foot. You are Roman, followers of Jesus Christ. We would call you Gentiles, Paul said. As far as the Jews are concerned, they're enemies of the gospel. What is the gospel? Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sin and mine. He rose again on the third day. The way I embrace that message, that gift from God, is through authentic faith, repentance and faith, and that ensures eternal security with God my Father. That is the gospel in a nutshell. Paul says... The Jews, because they executed Christ, are actually enemies of the gospel. But listen, it was for your sake. Because this takes us all the way back to Genesis chapter 12, where God chose one man named Abram. He would later be called Abraham. 
And he said, Abram, from you, from one man, I'm going to build a nation. The nation would be Israel. And from that nation will come one who will bless all the people, Jew and Gentile, around the world. So what Paul is saying in verse 28 is, yeah, yeah. It may look like the Jews are enemies of the gospel because they executed God's son. They crucified him. But that's the only means by which you were able to taste the blessing and become part of the promise of Genesis chapter 12. Okay? Keep reading. But as far as election, election, it was preordained. It was foundational that God chose the Jewish people. They were elected as his people. As far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Verse 29, for God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. Verse 30, just as you who were at one time disobedient to God have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience. Okay, again, follow me. I don't want to put too many words to this and further confuse you. Let's go back to the Old Testament when Israel was the light of God in the world. Israel, that's why his people were chosen. He would reveal himself through a special and peculiar people known as the Hebrews, then the Jews, Israel. Okay, While they were lighting the world, the Gentiles were pagans. They were worshiping false gods. They were sacrificing their own children to idols. So Paul is saying, while at one time you Gentiles were disobedient, it's only because of the Jewish disobedience to crucify Christ that you get to taste the mercy of God. Verse 31, so they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy on you. Do you know that in the book of Jeremiah in the Old Testament, there was a point where Jeremiah was praying for his countrymen, praying for Israel, and God said, stop that, stop, stop. Jeremiah, just stop praying for your nation because I've hardened their hearts. In other words, they're so disobedient right now, they're falling right in line with my plan to sacrifice my own son. But there is coming a day, according to the Bible, when God will lift that hardening. And if you follow me here, Old Testament, Israel was the light. The Gentiles were hardened of heart. They were pagan and idolatrous. But then Israel hardened her heart and executed the blessing for the entire world, Jesus Christ, God's Son. That opened the door for the Gentiles to respond to that blessing. And eventually, the hardening will lift from the Jewish heart as well, so that all men will know the mercy of God. In fact, that's what he says. Look at verse 32. For God has bound everyone over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. Again, it's not about Jew. It's not about Gentile. It's not about chosen. It's not about adopted. It's not about Roman. It's not about Hebrew. It's about God. Everything is about God. Now, what follows in verse 33 is what we call a doxology. You familiar with that word? The doxology. If you grew up in a Southern Baptist church, I guarantee you, you're familiar with the doxology, right? Because in a Southern Baptist church, every time the offertory is played, the offering plates are passed, everyone stands to sing the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Remember that? Some of you look at me like I'm crazy. Okay? Doxa is a Latin word. It means glory. 
So a doxology is a song or a statement that gives glory to God. That's what the doxology did. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above, ye heavenly hosts. Uh, the whole idea behind the doxology is a statement, a song that, that shines brilliance back to God. In fact, that's what the word doxa means, honor, brilliance, splendor, and praise. Now watch. Here it comes, verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable His judgments. His paths beyond tracing out. Verse 34, I love this. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? In other words, okay, raise your hand if you are smarter than your creator. Raise your hand if God needs to approach you for advice. He goes on, verse 35. Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? Verse 36. For from him, Everything we understand, experience, and know of the universe came from God, from Him. And through Him, everything we understand, know, and can experience in the universe is sustained by God. I breathe my next breath only because of God. And for Him, your translation might read, to Him, same idea. And for Him are all things. Not Jew, not Gentile, not you, not me, not for any of us, for him. Hmm. Very countercultural. To him be the glory forever and ever. Why? Because it's not about us. It's just not. It's about God. So what's that tell me? And my time is gone. I've got to go very quickly. What's that tell me? That tells me that I was created to glorify God. That's why we speak so often about a love relationship with God. Look, if you're a mother, don't you want other people to look fondly on your children? Why? Because you know they reflect you, and you are a reflection of them. If you're a father, don't you want other people to kind of admire your son's athletic prowess or his intellectual acumen? Why does that matter? Because you know your son is a reflection of you, and you are a reflection of your son. Your son reflects your glory as a father. Same is true with God. I exist to glorify my Father. Listen to this verse, Jeremiah 9, verse 23. Let him who boasts, boast about this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord. Earlier in the passage, Jeremiah says, if you're going to boast, don't boast about how strong you are. Don't boast about how smart you are. Don't boast about how rich you are. Then he says, let him who boasts, boast about this, that he understands and knows me. So, last big statement and I'll quit. Very simply, you were created to bring glory to God. That's why I'm here. It's not all about me. I'm here to glorify God in my marriage. I'm here to glorify God in my work. I'm here to glorify God in my relationships. I'm here to glorify God with my money. I'm here to glorify God and you fill in the blank. You see, everything about your life, good and bad, Good days, bad days, strong days, weak days, everything about your life is either ordained, planned of God, or at least allowed by God to meet that end, that you glorify your Father who is in heaven. Several years ago, Dr. Chuck Swindoll, who's kind of a theological hero of mine, 
He told a story about an elder in his church. This man had been a part of the church for decades. A faithful servant of God, but there was one hurdle this man had yet to cross. Dr. Swindoll touched on the idea in a Sunday morning message. He stood before a large congregation and he said, everything in your life belongs to God. He owns it all. You ought to give everything back to its original owner, God, your heavenly Father. This man sat there and thought, you know, I'm a Sunday school teacher. I'm an elder in this large church. I'm very successful in my business. In fact, this man was so successful in his business that he had branched out. He made millions of dollars, incredibly successful. He said, but the one thing I've never given to God is my business. So that afternoon, he got in his car and he started on his way home. And it took him several uh, minutes and miles to reach his driveway But he prayed the whole way home, God, today's the day. I'm tired of worrying. I'm tired of fretting. I'm tired of my own disobedience. Today, I'm giving this back to you. And by the time he rolled into his driveway, he had given his business over to God. That very night, this is where the story is humorous, or ironic, I should say. He got a phone call. His business was burning up, burning to the ground. He got that call at 2 in the morning like those of us would despite we'd hate to get a call like that but he got it and he was calm he was purposeful he was focused he got dressed he got in his car he drove to that commercial address and he stood there out out there on the street with his arms crossed and he watched all of his work all of his time all of his energy all of his money in some ways burned to the ground one of his colleagues and co-workers ran up to him realized that He didn't seem to have concern on his face. In fact, it almost looked like a smile, a kind of a sheepish grin. He turned him around, squared to him, he shook him by the shoulders. He said, man, are you in shock? Don't you understand what's happening? That's all our hopes. That's all our dreams. That's all our money. That's all our resource. That's all our security. Your business is burning down. And the man said, it's okay. It's okay. Because this morning... I gave that business to God. It belongs to Him. And if He wants to burn it down, that's His business. Now, true story. And you might assume that's the perfect kind of story that a preacher would use to get me to do something that I don't really want to do. But it's not. I can tell you from personal experience, personal experience, that there was a time in my life where something I considered precious burned to the ground right before my very eyes. And I could do nothing about it. The only thing I could do was hold on to the reality that it's not about me anyway. It's about Him. That, by the way, is the conclusion that Solomon came to. At the end of Ecclesiastes chapter 12, he wraps up his diary with these words. So here's the conclusion. Fear God. Keep His commandments. That's the goal in life. That should be your goal, and that should be my goal. And when it becomes our goal, it will never, ever become all about us. Let's pray. Father, help us and teach us to do something that doesn't come naturally to us, and that's sacrifice. Father, help us see and realize that every part of our lives, every part of it, ultimately belongs to you. You've given it to us that we might use it to glorify you. Make it so in this church, in these families, relationships, these individuals, our jobs, our careers, our money. God, may it all honor and glorify your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name I pray. Amen.
God bless you, Grace Community Church. I hope you make it a fantastic week. I will see you next time.